Now, that, that was actually my first Ekman case, but not as a physician. That's the voice of Torvin Nersheim, an intensivist and cardiothoracic anesthesiologist at the University of Norway in Tromso, the largest urban area north of the Arctic Circle and believed to be the northernmost ECMO center of the world. Heading up their ECMO and retrieval medicine programs, Torvind is used to seeing a disproportionate number of hypothermic arrest cases. Having attained a particular expertise in the resuscitation of hypothermic arrest, Torvind and his team are doing ECMO, but in the most extreme situations. But this story starts over a decade ago, in 1999, when Torvin was an intern at the Narvik Hospital in Norway. You see, Torvin and his friend, Anna Bagenholm, who was an orthopedic surgery resident at the Narvik Hospital, were extreme skiers. So I was working as an intern at the small hospital at the time. Um, and Anna, that's her name, and I we were skiing a lot in the mountains around Narvik, that's south of here. <laughs> 150 miles or 250 kilometers south of Tromsø, Norway, lies Narvik, Norway, where the two were skiing. And one day she had this accident, so she fell into a crevasse, um, down into a, a river, a river, and it was really cold. It was May, so it was probably some yeah, zero degrees or something like that, centigrade. Uh, and she was stuck there for 80 minutes. So Anna had fallen down the crevasse, was inverted, and went through the ice of a small river. Under just a few feet of ice and freezing cold water, Anna was trapped. Torvin and a friend went to work trying to extricate Anna from the ice, but it was fully 80 minutes before they could get her out of the water and begin CPR. Anna was in a systole. So me and another girl, we tried to, uh, to drag her out of uh, the crevasse, but we really couldn't do it. So we thought, okay, she'll be drowning quite fast. Bubbles for a few minutes and then nothing. But then she continued to move for half an hour. And then we understand that this is not drowning. The skiers called emergency services, who arrived 40 minutes later. But in the meantime, Torvin and his group attempted desperately to pull Anna out of the river. But the pressure head of the water moving downstream was too great to get her out of the river. Yeah, she was kind of laying on her back with her face up against the ice. It was quite shallow, but even so, she was stuck. But they came up with a solution. Uh, but then someone had brought a shovel, um, a steel shovel. Uh, and made a hole in the ice um, below her, so downstream of her. And we used a rope to lower her from the hole she has fallen into and then up the other hole. At this point, things were not looking good for Anna. So when we got her onto the ice, she had um, uh, not been moving for 45 minutes. So it was 80 minutes of, of uh, exposure time, but 45 minutes um, without movement. With few other options available, and certainly no medical equipment available, Torvind and his friends continued CPR and didn't even notice that the Sea King Air Ambulance had shown up. And I, I didn't notice because it's quite a noisy English machine. It's on uh, 90 kilometers per hour of wind pressure below it. But I was doing CPR and I, I really didn't notice that the helicopter was coming at all before this doctor was standing on the ice beside me and said, oh, you're doing, you're doing fine. Um, I just intubate her and we her into the helicopter. Now a decision had to be made. From the ice, the scene of the accident, they could actually see the nearest hospital, the Narvik Hospital, which was a two-minute flight away. In CPR status, should Anna have been transported to the nearest hospital or taken to the nearest ECMO center, which was in Tromso, an hour and a half flight away? And the important thing here is from the helicopter, you can actually see the nearest hospital. That's Narvik Hospital, 
that would be like two minutes flight. But they decided to fly to to uh, University Hospital in uh, in Tromsø. You see, given their location and weather conditions, the Norwegians around this time had a fair amount of experience managing accidental hypothermic arrest victims, and they had found that traditional CPR efforts just didn't cut it. And they found out the only way to do that was to bring them to the hospital with a heart-lung machine. This being 17 years ago, before Torvin was a member of the ECMO team or the retrieval medicine team, Torvin could only assist loading Anna onto the air ambulance. At that point, the medic crew took over doing CPR and even attempted defibrillation at one point. So they did CPR all the time in the helicopter. They actually tried to defibrillate her one time, <laughs> but they decided um, uh, defibrillations on the EKG was just the helicopter vibrations. So Anna arrived an hour and a half later at the University of North Norway in Tromso, and upon arrival, she was found to have a core body temperature of 14.4 degrees centigrade. And as we're going to learn in the next segment from Torvind, that is profound hypothermia. And it dropped down to 13.7, and that's probably still a world record, I guess. That, my friends, is damn cold. I have seen 14.2 and 13.8, but never something lower than 13.7. That's not important anyway. In a moment, we'll return to the case of Anna Bagenholm and her experience with hypothermic arrest and as well Torvin's experience with hypothermic arrest. But for now, let's talk a little bit about exactly that. Accidental hypothermic arrest is not a common occurrence that occurs in San Diego, where the average temperature is 76 degrees or 24 degrees centigrade. It doesn't lend itself to a large number of hypothermic cases. But Norway, north of the Arctic Circle, where mean temperatures in the summer are 18 degrees Celsius and mean winter temperatures at minus 0.4 degrees Celsius, they see a quite a lot of hypothermic cases. And in some cases, resuscitation of these patients with heart-lung bypass or ECMO is the only chance these patients have. So when we get the patient, I'm... Um one of the team members deciding if, if it's an ECMO case or not. Um, then as a team, we cannulate the patients. So I usually run the anesthesia part, the um, hemodynamic part. The surgeon does the cannulation and we have a perfusionist during that stage. And when the patient is on ECMO, it's, uh, it's mostly run by the cardiothoracic anesthesiologist and the nurses in the ICU. Now, since Anna's accident 17 years ago, Torvind has gone on to complete his training in both intensive care and cardiac anesthesiology and is now one of the integral members of the retrieval medicine team and ECMO team at the University of North Norway in Tromso. So it sounds like in their model, they have the cardiothoracic anesthesiologist, which is Torvind in this case, do most of the hemodynamics while the surgeon does the cannulation. And then after the patient is up on ECMO, then they have the perfusionist and or the nursing team manage these folks. Now, the remainder of this segment is based on a paper that was written by Torvind and his colleagues at the University of North Norway in Tromso entitled, Prolonged Resuscitation is Warranted in Arrested Hypothermic Victims in Remote Areas. And that's from the journal Resuscitation, published in 2014. And the basic premise of this paper is based on the saying that we all learned back, way back in medical school, that nobody's dead until they're warm and dead. Well, this was a retrospective study 
looking at accidental hypothermic victims with cardiac arrest admitted to the University of North Norway between 1985 and 2013. And while there were no survivors prior to 1999, there were significant survivors with favorable neurologic outcomes when patients were resuscitated with ECMO. Now, studies prior to this one suggested that asphyxiation, either via snow burial like in an avalanche or water submersion, had a lower chance of survival. But this study didn't show this. And the authors explain this by suggesting that very cold temperatures create faster cooling rates and possibly aspiration of cold water may induce rapid protective cerebral hypothermia. So drowning victims in cold water may have a higher survival. So first, let's start off with some definitions. In accidental hypothermia, there is mild accidental hypothermia, and that's temperatures between 32 and 35 degrees Celsius. And by definition, these patients have preserved capability to maintain core temperature through compensating thermoregulatory mechanisms. That's the important stuff uh, with those 32 degrees. So physiology is, is pretty much uh, the same as the normal temperatures, just a little bit slowed down but you still can compensate. Moderate hypothermia is 28 to 32 degrees centigrade. Then you lose your ability to, to compensate. So unless you, uh, you add energy to that patient, it will cool down. Severe hypothermia, defined as a core body temperature between 20 and 28 degrees centigrade, results in high risk of malignant arrhythmias. In that range, uh, your heart is really getting unstable. You get all these arrhythmias, and it might have malignant arrhythmias as well. And below 20 degrees centigrade, profound hypothermia. Then you will most probably be in asystole. So going back to the Norway paper, between 1999 and 2013, they resuscitated 24 patients who had an accidental hypothermic arrest. And they resuscitated those with ECMO, and they found that nine of those had a favorable neurologic outcome. And now nine of 24 amounts to 37.5% neurologically intact recovery. And if that rings a bell to anybody, that's right in the same range as the recovery rates that they're seeing for eCPR in France and Taiwan and Japan and, and even at our place. It's right in that same low 30s range. We have a few cases. I, I think there was one case... Uh, with a severe neuro neurological damage in that uh, series, but most of the patients are back to their, their daily life. So not only are the Norwegian guys convinced that patients' survival is better with heart-lung bypass, they actually believe it's better with ECMO as opposed, that's percutaneous ECMO, as opposed to the traditional roller pumps which they were using in the beginning. Yeah, so the first period um, we only had the heart-lung machine, so that was what we were using. And in the last period, we have been using more and more ECMO because there has been uh, studies showing uh, probably a better survival on ECMO than on heart-lung machine. Overwhelmingly, the cases of survival are almost ubiquitously related to submersion injuries for hypothermic arrest. Drowning is, is uh, clearly the most, um, the, the most usual case. Um, so they have been in water for a while, and, and you never know if, if their airway has been uh, below the surface or not. So it might be an immersion, so that's airway above the water, or a submersion, airway below water, and we never quite know. Next, we have to define the difference between the immersion injury and the submersion injury. In the immersion injury, it's a patient who goes into the cold, but their head is above water, so they're able to breathe for a short period of time. With the submersion injury, the head goes below water immediately, and they immediately experience cold water asphyxiation. 
Now this seems to make a huge difference in whether or not these patients survive with neurologic integrity. Now, interestingly, it also seems to make a difference whether folks are asphyxiated by submersion or via avalanche. Yeah, that is what we always uh, have thought. But it seems like it's a quite big difference between being submerged and being buried in an avalanche. Because um, in submersion, we see lower temperatures in the patient coming in and much better results. So they survive at a greater rate than the avalanche victims. We don't have any um, survivors from avalanches and we do have quite a lot of avalanches up here. So, in the typical situation, they receive a call that there's an accidental hypothermic arrest patient in the field. A helicopter will be sent to the scene, and that helicopter will retrieve the patient and bring them back to the University of North Norway. Yeah, usually they are retrieved by helicopter, and um, the helicopter crew will do, uh, do CPR, um, most often with uh, a mechanical compression device like Lucas. And we don't stop in the ER, we go directly to the operating th theater, and put them on ECMO or heart-lung machine. So the retrieval team brings the patient in by ambulance on a mechanical chest compression device, and in their situation, they're using the Lucas, much like we are, and bring the patient, they bypass the emergency room. So the ER docs in their situation are not doing the cannulation. In fact, it doesn't even seem like they're involved in the case whatsoever. These patients bypass their ER and go right to the operating room. Usually by a surgical cutdown, because there would be no pulse. So you really can't do, um, do a percutaneous procedure. So it's by cut down. Now here's an interesting twist. While the surgeons are attempting to gain femoral, venous, and arterial access and cannulate, one of the first things that Torben's team does is grab an arterial sample, an arterial blood sample. They want to know what the potassium is. Because we are concerned about the potassium, high level of potassium, uh, then we will probably stop the resuscitation. So what potassium levels do they use as cutoffs? We, we use 12 as a cutoff. Ilcor has changed that to 8 now, uh, probably to avoid um, a significant overcharge. But in our experience, 12 is a good number. So we have seen survivors uh, above 8, not in our center, but in, in other centers. So we'll keep on to our level of 12. So the bottom line here is, you show up in their operating suite after a prolonged arrest, and your potassium is above 12, game over. You don't get put on pump. But on the other hand, there are really no other known neuroprognosticators for people who are cold and dead. You can't really tell if a patient is dead or alive if it's cold. So the usual definitions of death, they don't work. Uh, in a cold patient. So unfortunately, aside from potassium levels, there is just no means to neuroprognosticate a patient who's had a prolonged hypothermic arrest. Now, how long is too long? So, I mean, if it has been um, uh, like two hours, three hours, something like that, then we don't do the case. Um, but we do cases up to uh, one and a half hour. And, and very often the story is so unclear, we just err on the safe side. So this seems to be the triage process. A reasonably young, healthy individual who falls through the ice, is submerged, is in profound hypothermic arrest, either asystole or ventricular fibrillation, does not seem to matter, comes in, gets transported to their facility, bypasses the ER, goes to the OR. Immediately, a potassium level is drawn. And according to Torvind, the only blood sample that really makes any difference is the potassium. But if they've come in within about an hour and a half of their submersion injury they get the benefit of the doubt. Now, so a lot of people have tried to find uh, prognostic factors for survival, and, and potassium is pretty much uh, the only 
the only blood sample you can do that shows mm -hmm. uh, for correlation to survival. Now let's turn the page. The team has made the decision to put the patient on ECMO, so they begin the cut-down process. So what size cannulas do you think they're going to use? We believe in big cannulas. We typically put in um, probably a 29 venous to one arterial. Wait, did you catch that? 29 venous and 21 arterial. Those are their go-tos. That would be our usual choice. Maybe if you had trouble, trouble in a hypothermic patient, you might have a, a constriction of the vessels and then we will size down. But in a normal thermic patient, we believe in big cannulas. So as most of you know, for eCPR, we're typically using smaller cannulas than that, that's for sure. We're using somewhere in the range of a 17 French arterial and a 19 French venous. So why the massive cannulas? Yeah, we know, but it's uh, it's probably from, um, from the work we are doing on uh, uh, cardiogenic shock. We believe in, in sufficient flow and sufficient um, uh, sufficient reduction of the work of the ventricles. Uh, yeah, that's that's our belief that big cannulas, high flow, um, have good, uh, good reduction of cardiac work. So one school of thought here is that the colder temperatures in these patients that they're seeing, hypothermic arrest, have higher viscosity of the blood itself lending for lower flows with the smaller-sized venous cannulas. And in their experience, higher cannulas mean higher flow, and they don't seem to be getting the same complication rate because of the larger-sized cannulas. We think we, yeah, we're getting the flow we want, so we're not kind of limited to, to a lower flow than we would really want. We get the, the rates that we, we think we need. So now you've taken a patient who's suffered a accidental hypothermic arrest. They're cold. You cannulated them and you put them on bypass. Let's say you get adequate flows. Well, then how quickly do you rewarm them? Um, we that, that that's another uh, major issue because we believe in quite fast rewarming. A lot of people believe in slow rewarming. Yeah. So we would rewarm with um, a temperature difference between venous blood and return blood on ten degrees. That's the max because. Uh, at a high differential, we are concerned about bubble formation. So Torben's team uses a rewarming differential, the difference between the venous and the arterial side of no more than 10 degrees at a time. Yeah, so then we get uh, a rewarming rate of about 8 to 10 degrees per hour. So pragmatically, they set their water bath to 36 degrees because they're not going to want the body temperature to go above 36 degrees. And we're going to get into that form of targeted temperature management in the setting of the hypothermic arresting patient. But they do it at no more than 10 degrees differential at a time. And we never go above, above um, some 36 degrees in, um, in the water bath because you don't want to cook the brain. Because the brain temperature will be pretty much the same as the blood temperature and the core temperature will lag behind. So Torben's team takes the patient to 36 degrees Celsius and then stops. Yeah, we do that. We used to stop at 34 degrees, and now we tend to stop at 36 degrees. Now, in wrapping up this segment, there's one last really important point to make. In looking at the statistics, it does not appear that the patients that Torvind and his team are putting on ECMO are languishing on ECMO for days or weeks on end. It appears much like the rest of the data that we see, that these patients tend to declare themselves within the first 24 to 48 hours. Yeah, the survivors had a median stay of 10 days and the non-survivors zero days, or uh, less than one day. <laughs> and really don't appear to burn through significant valuable resources.
So, in wrapping up, Torvin Nirsheim, an intensivist and cardiothoracic anesthesiologist from the University of Norway in Tromso, and the ECMO team at his place practice in one of the coldest places on Earth, above the Arctic Circle. Having vast experience managing traumatic hypothermic arrest, typically submersion injuries, the team has learned that the best way to do this is by heart-lung bypass, and preferably via ECMO, done percutaneously or via cutdown. In using ECMO in these patients, Torvin mentioned a few key take-home points. First, patients who arrest from profound hypothermic submersion injury have a relatively high success rate for survival after ECMO resuscitation, and they deserve a shot. Two, when patients arrive to your door, check a potassium. Potassium levels greater than 8 is bad. Greater than 12 likely dead, and you should consider stopping all resuscitative efforts. But no other laboratory test, including a pH, can predictably determine survivability. Three, profoundly hypothermic patients cannot generate high flow rates, possibly due to the increased blood viscosity at the colder temperatures. Torvin recommends using big cannula, typically in the 29 French venous and 21 French arterial range on average. Four, rewarm with a veno-arterial temperature gradient of no more than 10 degrees centigrade. Faster rewarming may result in bubble formation. Torvin controls the rewarming using the ECMO water bath heater cooler. Five, what about targeted temperature management? Traditionally, we've thought about this for patients who regain return of spontaneous circulation, but no return of neurologic function. But profound accidental hypothermia begs the use of the term targeted temperature management. You raise the temperature using the 10 degree temperature gradient rule that Torvin mentioned above and then target 33 to 36 degrees and hold them there. The ECMO team in Norway currently hold the core temperature at 36 degrees for 24 to 48 hours. And lastly, remember the old mantra that you're not dead unless you're warm and dead because you don't know if that patient is actually alive and cold or if he's dead. not getting any better at that after working with this all these years. I'm, I'm still not certain about which patients are cold. Now, remember the case we discussed at the beginning of the show? 17 years ago, Torvin Nersheim was skiing with his good friend, Anna Bagenholm. Tragically, she went down a crevasse and became submerged under ice for 80 minutes while Torvin and another friend worked desperately to try to pull her from the ice. Once pulled from the ice, Anna was in asystole, and her core body temperature on arrival to the hospital was 13.7 degrees Celsius, the lowest of any known potential survivor of accidental hypothermia. A prolonged CPR effort continued for the next hour and a half while the helicopter transport team bypassed several non-ECMO hospitals to bring Anna to the nearest ECMO center the University Hospital of North Norway in Tromsø. Well, I was not in the helicopter, so I was at the scene. So the helicopter crew was taking over um, and they flew to the University Hospital in uh, Tromsø for one and a half hours. And then she was brought directly to the operating theater and put on, on carpulmonary bypass. But while they followed the protocols, it didn't all go perfectly smoothly. So a surgical cut down, um, low flow at the beginning, the highest flow they could achieve, but quite low flow, and increasing to, uh, to four liters. And they started to rewarm her. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing about this is that the core temperature 
is is lagging behind. So when you rewarm on on carpenter bypass, your blood temperature will increase really steep, and the heart temperature is increasing quite steeply. So after 20 minutes, her heart was 30 degrees, and then it started by itself. So it converted spontaneously to uh, to a sinus rhythm. And Anna's heart was beating on its own again. Um, yeah, then she got uh, at 30 degrees in cardiac temperature. Uh, she got a sinus rhythm, and she was rewarmed for 190 minutes, all in all, until the core temperature was um, at 37. At that time, they were up to 37 degrees. And then she had a lot of problems because uh, they tried to put in central lines while they were still doing uh, CPR. So she had a lesion to um, arteria subclavia at one side, so they had to do a tracheotomy to deal with that and a sternotomy to um, to correct that um, and when they finished all of that her lungs were all white so it was a total lung whiteout and she couldn't oxygenate so when they tried to uh, to wean her off the carpenter bypass that didn't work and they had to put her on an ECMO so that was the first time I saw an ECMO ever so Anna was on ECMO for five days on a ventilator five weeks she had to be on ECMO for five days, um, and she had um, the continuous renal replacement therapy for for two or three weeks. She was on a ventilator for six weeks. Um, she was moved. She's Swedish. She was moved from Norway to Sweden at one point after four weeks, and she stayed a couple of months in a, a rehab unit in Sweden because when she wake up, she was paralyzed from neck down. So she could only move one shoulder and her head and that was everything. Initially regaining strength in her legs and then her hands. Yes, yeah, so I think that was um, cold-induced uh, neuro neuropathia. <laughs> Anna regained all of her capacities but still had some troubles with manual dexterity in her hands. And it, uh, she, she record, recovered quite well. Um, in the course of a few years, she really recovered. So the accident was in in May 99, and she was skiing skiing again in October 99. And while she's back to skiing the backcountry again, her career in orthopedic surgery was certainly in doubt. Yeah, she was training to be a surgeon at the time, but um, she has some neurological deficits uh, in her hands. So she's not that good at, uh, at detailed uh, surgeon's work. So she, she changed specialty for radiology, and she's enjoying that. So she went on, she was um, head of the radiology department in Tromsø five, six years after that. So now, Dr. Anna Bagenholm is an attending radiologist at the University Hospital of North Norway in Tromsø and is working on her PhD, Trauma Radiology. Torben Nersheim has become a world's expert in managing profound hypothermic arrest using ECMO at the same hospital, the University of North Norway in Tromsø the same hospital that saved the life of Anna Bagenholm some 17 years ago. You know, I asked Torvin whether or not he thought Anna would mind us telling her story today, and he really didn't think she would mind, but he would have to check with her later on. After all, they live together now. Yeah, you can say that. I, I have to struggle with her every day because we live together. Joe Velezzo for the EDECMA podcast. Podcast.